Amy Silverman, welcome to Heart of the Arts on KBOC. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. So um, for someone who is unfamiliar with the book, uh, what what is it about? Well, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Sophie, was born with Down syndrome. It was a surprise to my husband and me. And I had never met anybody with Down syndrome before Sophie. So I wrote the book that I wish I'd had read before I had her and a book that I definitely needed once I did have her. Now, I've had the benefit of meeting Sophie and and hanging out with Sophie, and I know um, what an incredibly vibrant, enthusiastic, uh, even presentational personality she is. How has she, uh, in your own words, how, how has she responded to having a book essentially about her? Sophie really loves that there's a book about her. (laughs) Really loves that a lot. Um, And she's really into books. And so she appreciates that. Uh, her, she has an older sister and who's two years older, and a lot of people have asked me, you know, how does Annabelle feel about this? She's not the, she's in the book, but she's not the subject of the book. Her picture's not on the cover. When I brought it up with her, she said, you know, I don't really like the spotlight, but Sophie does. Mm. So Sophie's really happy about it. In terms of what it means, um, you know, sort of in a more serious way, in terms of educating people about Down syndrome, she really grapples with the whole issue of having it herself. And so some days she wants to talk about it. Uh, We were in Tucson at a reading and she answered questions directly about having Down syndrome. In fact, she wanted her own microphone. We went to Denver (laughs) and that day she didn't want to talk about it. I find that a lot of nonfiction writers who are passionate about their subjects either are overwhelmed by the amount of material that they have or that it comes very easily and naturally. Where did you find yourself in that spectrum? I knew I wanted to write this book a really long time ago. And... And I never wanted to write a book just to write a book. So it really was like this hunting and gathering process over. There were several years where I just ignored the project completely, but I just kept gathering material. So it was overwhelming in a way. But when I finally sat down, when I knew I was ready to do it and wrote an outline, that was pretty easy. Amy Silverman, welcome to Heart of the Arts on KBOC. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. So for someone who is unfamiliar with the book, uh, what what is it about? Well, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Sophie, was born with Down syndrome. It was a surprise to my husband and me. And I had never met anybody with Down syndrome before Sophie. So I wrote the book that I wish I'd had read before I had her and a book that I definitely needed once I did have her. Now, you've been managing editor of the of the New Times for a long time, many, many years. You've been a very successful journalist. You when when you found out about this diagnosis, as you put in the book, you you essentially approached it as a journalist. First, I approached it actually more as a parent. Right. My husband's a journalist as well, and so he he took the journalist role partly because I had just had a C-section, so I was stuck in bed, and he ran off to the medical library at the hospital and started doing research. But more than that, even once I could get up and walk around, I found that it was too much for me to start doing that kind of reporting that a, that a journalist does or even that a, that a competent parent does. I was sort of paralyzed in the moment, which had never happened to me before. But as Sophie got older, 
I started figuring out how to process our relationship and what her role is in the world and our role as a family. And that's when I started I started treating our story like a journalist. Now, you have this wonderful anecdote early on where you're talking with your husband, Ray, and you ask him about um, his curly hair and, and when his mother stop, uh, stop, stopped or started blow-drying it. Stopped. Uh, stopped. <laughs> and um, he doesn't tell you because he's, he, he's uh, worried that you're going to write about it. How do you propose a project like this to, to your family? Well, I'm not saying I did it the right way, but I didn't. <laughs> I started writing about Sophie and our family in in really small fits and starts pretty early on. I did my first cover story that involved Sophie uh, when she was about a year and a half or two years old. And so so Ray saw it unfold as it went. And then I started a blog about her when she was five. Uh, And he has never offered edits or really even comments. Uh, I think part of that is because he's a stand-up guy, and I and I do think part of it is that I do a lot of pre-editing myself. Mm. Now your blog is uh, "Girl with a Party Hat," right? "Girl in a Party Hat," and um, where where did the title come from? It actually came from the art. The title imitated art. Is that <laughs> is that a good play on it? Uh, my dear friend Deborah Sussman, I was over at my house and I had just placed an order on Etsy. I'd met this artist at an, at an arts festival. She was from Oregon at the time, and I loved her work. And I got online, and I found it's a it's an old-fashioned-looking girl wearing a party hat. And Deborah said, oh, my God, somebody should write a book and, and use this as the cover. And a little bit later, I was trying to name the blog. And Sophie was five, and she was really into chocolate ice cream, and she really <laughs> loved to dance, and we were planning her birthday party. So I wanted to name the blog chocolate dance party and Deborah and I have taught together for years and she's sort of my unofficial editor you know I I run everything by her and so I ran that by her and she said oh my friend I think you should probably google chocolate dance party before you call your blog that and so I did and you know we're we're on public radio so I won't say more than that but you can google chocolate (laughs) dance party and see why I didn't name it that and she said why don't you just name it after that awesome piece of art and it really worked for me because it's never really been identified who the girl in the party hat is. Mm. Sometimes it's Sophie, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's just about the world. Part of what makes you an extraordinary writer is that you've written about so many different types of things. You've written about politics, you've written about restaurants, you've written about uh, so many different things for the Phoenix New Times, and you've seen the media evolve very quickly. How was it jumping into a blog? Was it was it freeing? Was it Was it different? Was it scary at all? It was actually a colleague of mine at New Times who convinced me to start the blog and, and helped me physically set it up. Um, I was very much against blogging. I don't believe, I still don't believe in writing for free. I think that even if it's for $10, $5, you should still be paid for your work. What we do, what you and I do mm. is should be valued and it's valuable. Uh, and I always tell, you know, writers will write to me all the time at New Times and say, you know, can I, can I write for you guys? And I say, well, we don't have a budget for that. And they say, oh, I don't need money. And Mm -hmm. I say, yes, you do. You know, we don't ever accept anything for free. And that's how I felt about blogging. And you're not edited. You know, it's just very different than the culture of writing that I grew up in. So this woman was very smart. They were getting ready to start blogs at 
New Times at the time at the at the bigger company and everybody was dragging their heels and it was one of these things they said well we're going to start this thing called a food blog uh, get the food critic to write one post a week then it was okay now get her to write three posts a week okay now get her to write a post every day okay now get her to write three posts every day then she quit which you know was understandable and 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 at the beginning of that process I just kept saying I don't get blogs I don't like blogs. I'm really into print. Print's going to die. You know, it's very histrionic about it. And this woman figured out, you know, what my number was. And she knew I liked to write about Sophie. And so um, that that's what led to the beginnings of Girl in a Party Hat. And actually, now that I've done it for so many years, and I don't blog as much anymore, but I, I really am a convert. I think that it is a great way to exercise your writing muscle, particularly if you're like me and you're too self-aware to journal or perhaps not self-aware enough. I always need to be able to bounce things off an audience. It's real, it really has it's helped me build a community in the, among parents of kids with Down syndrome nationally. It's just really been a great thing. Now, um, you, you had mentioned being the, you know, the the sort of hardened journalist personality, but the book is also, and the blog too, they're, they're just riddled with humor. Mm, and, thank you. And, I don't think of myself as funny at all. <laughs> but like, it, it's almost like there's a distinction between funny and just these humorous moments that you're able to weave into a story that could be, um, it could be very dark. Well, right? there are a lot of humorous moments in life. And I think, you know, I... I think it's really important to juxtapose that with the other stuff going on. My goal was not to be humorous, but my goal was to present a real picture of what our lives are like. So at what stage did you decide that the blog could be translated into a a nearly 300-page book? So it actually really isn't much of a blog to book, Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. There are definitely pieces that morphed, and there are certainly stories that have been told in various forms. Um, The story of uh, Sophie really wanting to go through puberty um, uh, was a piece I originally read at Lit Lounge, which was a live reading series, and then it appeared in Brainchild magazine. Then Ira Glass actually interviewed me about it for This American Life, and then it ended up as part of a chapter in the book. So um, I'm very environmentally friendly. I recycle. Um, no, but but stories do get told, you know, kind of again and again. Um, and and several of them were originally New Times cover stories because the part of the conceit of the book was to definitely have storytelling in there, but to hook it up with real journalism, real reporting. And so, for example, when I was I started out looking for a charter school for Sophie, and we could not find one. Uh, I also, when I decided that that could be a really great story for New Times to report on how special needs kids were getting pushed out by charter schools locally, I also couldn't find a family that was willing to go on the record to talk about it, even though I found plenty of families. And I thought, well, I might as well put my money where my mouth is and tell our story, because to me it was it was a really good example, and and it's really important I think to attach personal narrative to to public policy. Mm-hmm. Now I've had the benefit of meeting Sophie and and hanging out with Sophie, and I know um, 
what an incredibly vibrant, enthusiastic, uh, even presentational personality she is. How, how has she responded to having a book essentially about her? What's interesting is that, first of all, in answer to your question, I feel like a lot of the best Sophie stories about her, you know, interacting with the world haven't even been told so much because the book the book doesn't go too much into her later years, a little bit. Um, but in answer to your question, Sophie really loves that there's a book about her. <laughs> really loves that a lot. Um, and she's really into books. And so she appreciates that. Uh, her, she has an older sister and who's two years older. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, how does Annabelle feel about this? She's not that she's in the book, but she's not the subject of the book. Her picture's not on the cover. And, you know, I say, well, you know, she did artwork that's in the book. She did the music that goes with the trailer. But but the real answer to the question is, you know, when I when I brought it up with her, she said, you know, I don't really like the spotlight, but Sophie does. Mm. So Sophie's really happy about it. In terms of what it means, um, you know, sort of in a more serious way, in terms of educating people about Down syndrome, she really grapples with the whole issue of having it herself. And so some days she wants to talk about it. Uh, we were in Tucson at a reading and she answered questions directly about having Down syndrome and she really stayed on task uh, during the Q&A. In fact, she wanted her own microphone. We went to Denver <laughs> and that day she didn't want to talk about it. So... And I had to honor that could um, because her cousins were there. Mm. But she it, it really kind of depends on the day. And so I'm constantly wondering what's going through that head. Um, so in answer to the question, she she really likes having a book about her. But but she does grapple with the topic. Now, this is your first book, right? Yes. How has it been um, being an author in the 21st century when everyone's saying uh, that that books are going downhill or that ebooks are picking up? It's it's very confusing time for the industry. But you've gone on tour. You you have uh, you've been going to a number of cities, and Sophie has gone with you uh, for a number of these readings. How's the experience been? Okay, seriously. If you want to know, well, you already know this because you've done it several times, but I had no idea. I feel like if I wanted to know what my funeral was going to be like, but with me there, that is what this is like. <laughs> I'm not that likable a person. And people have been so gracious. Mm. And, and my, my dear friends, my family, it means so much to me that my family loves the book because I didn't even tell them I was writing it. Mm. You know, I let Ray know I had signed a book contract uh, after I had done it. And they they have all been so supportive. Even my father, who you know, rarely offers a compliment, and and my circle of friends and colleagues have been incredibly supportive. And then outside of that, it's just been really incredible. But the thing that means as much or more, well, as much is as, as someone who loves books, like I know you do, is that. People so celebrate the book, the fact that you've written a book. You know, you go, like I went to Tattered Cover and they gave me an engraved bookmark and like mm. a bag of gifts at Changing Hands and a friend had a charm made for me with the cover of the book on it and another friend had a paper cut made for me with an interpretation of the of the cover. I mean, the, the way that that at least the people who are important to me revere books still after all that's happened gives me such hope. It, it makes me really happy. I don't know that it has anything to do with my book itself. 
but I will also say that, and I'm sure you also relate to this, it's it's an it's a process filled with like the highest highs and the lowest lows because it's really hard to get the word out about books. And I'm writing about a very particular topic that, as I said, is only going to appeal to a certain number of parents of kids with Down syndrome and is going to make people like you, right? So people I know who've met Sophie who are kind of part of our world, maybe interested in reading it, maybe feel Mm, uncomfortable about the topic that's why I wrote it because people are uncomfortable about the topic and so trying to figure out the right way to get the word out about it is it's tough it's a, it's an interesting experience it's really interesting to be on the other side as someone who has only taken in press releases all these years I'm curious actually about that um, there are a lot of sort of buttoned up folks who are who have been alarmed the past couple of decades by uh, the memoir explosion by first person writing that is very revealing about very personal stuff. What do you say to those people, uh, or what would you say to those people if they tried to bring that criticism to you? It's like, ah, maybe this shouldn't be, this should not be a secret, but be private. Well, there's a lot of criticism in the in this particular community that I'm in. There are people who feel strongly that. People with special needs, people with intellectual disabilities own their own stories Mm. and that nobody, including their parents, has the right to tell it. And that's something that's like a subset. That's something that I really do grapple with and I'm I'm working on writing about it right now um, because I feel strongly that while you have to be really careful with your storytelling and the personal details you reveal, you can't hide communities and that's what's particularly been going on with people with intellectual disabilities nobody with down syndrome had ever come to me kind of in 3d as a as a personality now there's this show born this way that's on uh, i think it's on a and e and it's a reality show and it's produced by uh the people behind real world and project runway And there's a ton of criticism because they show the parents too much and they only show people in a certain light. And it's only people with Down syndrome who are pretty high functioning because they want to they want them to have speech that's somewhat understandable. I think that's part of why Mm -hmm. and have them be interacting. And and there's just tons of criticism, particularly from these academics who are, you know, very particular about 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 what's what. And I used to be a lot more particular about it too. And now I feel like I've come back to my journalism roots with it. And it's just really important to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And did I do it perfectly in the book? Oh, probably not. Like I'll probably look back in 10 years and say, eh, maybe I shouldn't have told that. But a lot of people say to me, your book is so honest. And I say, yeah, how do you know? <laughs> right? You weren't there. A yes. Touche. There's a lot of information. There are a lot of personal details in that, but I can guarantee you for as much as is in there, 95% of it wasn't told. Mm. Because there is no objective story and you, you you know, you can tell we can all describe the scene in the radio station today and do it as objectively as we want and come off with completely different stories. There were whole storylines, if you will, that I left out. Um, And it's a curious question about who has the right to a story, uh, who controls a story that's that's happened. Uh, I I run into the end of the same problem with travel writing where I, I encounter someone or I hear a story in a cabana in some distant country. 
And I'm like, I'm, I'm never going to run into this person again, but it's an amazing story. Are they going to write it down? Do I now own it? Right. Whose story it to is me? it? Absolutely. Well, I think if you if you attribute it to them and you and you honor them, I don't know. I you do the best okay. you can do, right? You do the best you can do. But it's interesting. Somebody on Facebook this morning was one of my very smart friends was mentioning that she'd never heard Hillary Clinton's backstory about her family until last night. And that it suddenly explained so much about what Hillary Clinton was fighting for, mm-hmm. for children and families that her mother had been um, abandoned. And and it just really struck me that that, that personal narrative is so important and yes, we're oversharing. We just did a panel about it changing hands. You know, yes, yes, that does go on. And we need to constantly be editing ourselves. But it's also really important to honor why we do it. And I'm doing, I know why I'm doing it. Others can certainly disagree with why I'm doing it. But I think you need to have, you need to have a purpose. And that's what I always tell my writing students. Don't, don't tell some crazy story just to tell it. There has to be a reason. There has to be a moral. There has to be redemption. One of the biggest cliches in the arts is that writing a book is sort of like running a marathon in that it's this long journey. You think you're never going to finish and then you finish and and then it's this astonishing thing. Um, But I find that a lot of nonfiction writers who are passionate about their subjects either are overwhelmed by the amount of material that they have or that it comes very easily and naturally. Where did you find yourself in that spectrum? That's a really good question. I work. I think it was, it was hard for me. I because I was writing about a moving target. Sophie was changing all the time, and mm-hmm. I came up. I knew I wanted to write this book a really long time ago, and and I never wanted to write a book just to write a book. So it really was this this thing, and. I mean, going back to when she was like two or three, and and I had a whole construct for it. It was going to be each of her body parts, you know, and and the story kind of behind it because people with Down syndrome are, tend, are intellectually disabled, but then they also have a whole a whole host of physical issues, and and you can tie those to to different things. And so I followed that journey for a while, and I was told. You know, it's just too soon. She's not old enough, which, of course, made me mad. And and then I had to go back and say, yeah, 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 that agent was right. So it really was like this hunting and gathering process over. There were several years where I just ignored the project completely, but I just kept gathering material. So it was overwhelming in a way. But when I finally sat down, when I knew I was ready to do it and wrote an outline, that was pretty easy. Now that you finished that literary marathon, you've, you've had the book out. Do you imagine writing another book? Maybe. I would love to write a book about Sophie's teenage years, but she's only been 13 for a couple months, so I don't know how that would go. But this morning, she was giving us a hard time, and I said, hormones and chromosomes, hormones and chromosomes. (laughs) And I said, that would make a really good rock band name. And my husband said, or your next book. Uh-oh. <laughs> but I but honestly I wouldn't want to rush and do it. I would want to take my time like I did with this one. But I will not lie and say I have not started jotting down chapter ideas to start reporting on. A good title is quite the magnet though. It'll uh <laughs> Yeah. Well she she named this book and I ha I have another title in mind that she that she came up with, so um let's hear a selection if we if uh, right. if you don't mind. So this is from a chapter um, about mainstreaming Sophie. It's a it's a big issue right now. Um, mainstreaming kids in school. It's done a lot. It's sometimes it's not done enough. Sometimes too much. And it's um it's not always done well. 
The first day of kindergarten, I helped Sophie get dressed in a polka-dotted top and skirt and matching tennis shoes with Velcro straps that I'd scored on the sail rack at the Gap and convinced her to let me pull half her hair up off her face. At school, I felt other parents watching me, convinced I was sure that Sophie was someone's younger sister, not someone who belonged at this school. She was so much smaller than the other kindergartners. I lurked in the corner of the classroom as the kids took their spots on the bright blue carpet. The bell rang and the rest of the parents left, but I stayed. The principal's voice announced the Pledge of Allegiance over the loudspeaker, and to my surprise, of the two dozen students, just one kid popped up, put her teeny tiny hand over her heart, and began to recite along with the principal and teacher, Sophie. Well, at least preschool had taught her something, I thought, grinning through my tears as I slipped out the door to join some of my mom friends on the grass outside the classroom. I worried a lot about the student-teacher ratio, but I wasn't worried about the teacher. I had first spotted Jennifer Zemensky two and a half years earlier at Annabelle's kindergarten orientation night. The woman scared the crap out of me. Pretty and tall, with smooth blonde hair and long French manicured nails, Ms. Zemensky was loud and brash, announcing to a group of cowering parents that she didn't intend to take any flack from their kids. In contrast, the other kindergarten teacher at the event was older, demure, and sweet, almost trilling her words. I expected birds to fly out from behind her, Disney style. I knew which teacher Annabelle had to have. But a few weeks later, I ran into an old acquaintance at Trader Joe's, a reporter for the local daily newspaper. Her son Sawyer was already at Broadmoor, going into second grade. Hey, is she ready for kindergarten? Karina asked, pointing at Annabelle. You must request Jen Zemensky. Oh no, not her, I said. Are you kidding? I heard her at orientation night. She's terrifying. Really? She's my best friend. Awkward. Turns out Karina's son had been assigned to Ms. Zemensky's class, where he'd thrived. The two women now traveled to Disneyland, and Ms. Zemensky nannied for Sawyer in the summers. I took Karina's advice, and it was one of the single best decisions I ever made on my kids' behalf. Ms. Zemensky, as it turns out, is a strict but compassionate, dedicated teacher who adores her kids. I saw that with Annabelle, and even before Annabelle was done with her own kindergarten year, I saw it with Sophie. In more than a decade of teaching, she'd only had one other student with Down syndrome, but Ms. Zemensky and Sophie had chemistry. From the day she met her, Sophie would pretty much do anything Jen said. Never before or since has anyone had that kind of sway with the kid. Jen couldn't wait to get Sophie in her kindergarten classroom, which was all I needed to know. Sophie was wanted. When it was Sophie's turn at kindergarten, Ms. Zeminski invited her to come to her classroom before school started, even before meet the teacher night, so she could get comfortable. She knew Sophie had trouble with scissors, so she got assignments ready ahead of time, modifying them so Sophie wouldn't have to struggle. Late on the afternoon of the first day of school, my cell phone rang. She must have been exhausted, but Ms. Zemensky was calling to fill me in on Sophie's day, which had gone really well. Where are you, I asked, hearing noise in the background. Jen was at Walmart, buying a step stool. Some of the kids can't reach the sink in my classroom, she said. Later, I realized it was probably Sophie who couldn't reach. I bet the rest did just fine. As Sophie's future kindergarten teacher, Jen had been at a meeting the previous spring at Sophie's preschool where the occupational therapist had announced that Sophie would never write her name. She'll have to make an X, she said. I didn't forget that, and apparently neither did Jen. At the end of that first week, the phone rang. Guess what Sophie did today, Ms. Zeminski asked. She sent home the proof, the letters large and crooked, faint in pencil, but discernible. I cried. It was all good. 
except for 30 minutes a day, lunch and the recess that followed. The kids were expected to unpack and eat their lunches, pack up and throw trash away, and head out to the playground, all without assistance. I couldn't stop thinking about lunch. One wrong turn and Sophie would be out on the street. I was worried and I knew Ms. Zemensky was too. Any other time, she was around and she'd find Sophie, eventually. But lunch was her only break all day, a half hour mandated by the Teachers Association. A month into school, Sophie's IEP team met to see how things were going. We began by reviewing Sophie's progress in therapy. I brought reports from her outside physical therapist and occupational therapist, and we went over her daily schedule and achievements in class. Everything was going well, I was assured. Not long after the meeting began, the principal stepped outside. I knew she was busy. Her job was obviously a demanding one, and she had checked her phone several times already. She never returned. The principal hadn't said she needed to leave early. I wish she had, because I wouldn't have saved my most significant concerns for the end. But I was nervous. My main goal with this principal, with this school, had been to avoid rocking the boat. I was worried about sharing my concern about Sophie's safety at lunch. We scheduled another meeting. By that point, I was steaming. I had spent time in the cafeteria, and what a mess. The lunch situation wasn't just unsafe for Sophie. I didn't see one kid finish his or her lunch. Probably a good thing, considering what they were serving. Something that passed for a barbecue rib sandwich. I had to ask a kid what it was. Sophie brought her lunch, mostly so I could put stuff in that she could eat easily and quickly. The day I visited, she ate half a mini quiche. Raisins, cheese, and crackers were untouched. I was practically thrown back against the wall when someone blew a whistle and most of the kids cleared out to the playground. Before the half hour was over, I'd clapped my hands over my eyes at least twice. And then there was the playground. The day my mom visited, a little girl wet her pants. The day I was there, a kid fell and skinned her hand. The staff member on duty looked at me, unsure of what to do. I didn't know either. When we had the second IEP team meeting a week later, I explained all this to the principal. The ratio at the aftercare program at the school was 12 to 1, I said. What was the ratio at lunch? I guessed about 100 to 1. The principal told me that legally there was no ratio at lunch. And she told me that no, she could not assign someone to walk Sophie from the cafeteria to the playground each day. Are you sure, I begged. It would be half an hour a day to keep her safe at school. No, she said. If Sophie couldn't act like a typical kid, we'd need to explore options elsewhere in the district. I left the meeting and called the State Department of Education and confirmed that there was no student-adult ratio requirement at lunch at public schools in Arizona. I stayed up nights trying to figure out what to do. I couldn't bear the thought of sending Sophie to lunch alone another day. I couldn't leave work and drive across town each day to be there. I didn't want to pull her out of the school. So I did the only thing I could think to do. I went rogue. If the school wouldn't provide an aid for Sophie, I'd do it myself. I hired three college students to take turns, quote, volunteering in Sophie's classroom, deciding that as much as she loved and wanted Sophie, Ms. Zemensky did not have the time to keep an eye on her. She needed help. No one ever asked why these sweet, energetic girls were so interested in helping out in Jennifer Zemensky's kindergarten class or why they took such a specific interest in Sophie, particularly at lunch. They simply showed up for a shift I'd assigned them, signed in at the front desk, and put on a big volunteer sticker. I'm sure there wasn't much legal about it, but it quickly became clear that we had a don't ask, don't tell policy. And no one ever asked, not as far as I knew. The young women were instructed to hold back, not to hover over Sophie, to make sure she was safe, to help the teacher if she needed it, to keep an eye on Sophie, 
and to be my eyes and ears too. It wasn't cheap, but it was worth every penny. Amy Silverman, thank you so much for joining us on Heart of the Arts on KBOC. Thank you for having me.